If you want to turn in your notes to the uh, the other page, 8A, it's supposed to read 8B, but it's uh, mistitled on, uh, in your syllabus there. You'll see this heading, The Varieties of the Flesh. What we want to talk about now in greater detail for the rest of the night is about the flesh and, and what it looks like and some different varieties and, and then how it was formed. And... Um, you know, our, our flesh is unique to us as much as your DNA is unique to you or your fingerprint is unique. And so with the varieties of flesh, we have many different kinds. We have some listed on that page. The first one, the first variety is the well-adjusted person. This is the person that might be very outgoing, might be very happy, might be very even accomplished, might even be kind. And as one author called it, it's just prime red brand beef. It's good looking beef. Kind of like AAA Alberta beef. It's good flesh, but it is still flesh. Um, then there's the religious person who might be very devout, very active in the church, uh, tends to follow the rules, uh, could be a leader, might be the pastor or a missionary, but, but they tend to be more concerned about appearance and performance. They're about following the rules. What group in the New Testament does this describe? The Pharisees. And, you know, we often think of the Pharisees, at least I did, as, you know, that those people, they had, you know, a red suit, pitchfork, and horns, because that's how they're portrayed in many ways. But Pharisees, you'd want a Pharisee as a neighbor, because if one of his leaves ever fell into your yard, he would rake your entire yard, because he wanted to make sure not to offend anyone, because he wanted to make sure not to break the rules and the laws. So, you know, Pharisees weren't often seen as these, you know, evil, cruel people by other people today. They were often respected. But the reason that Jesus had so much trouble with them is because they were more interested in the behavior and the appearance than they were the heart. And that's what Jesus was after. Another form might be the self-depreciating person. They may be down on themselves, a false sense of humility, which is really just a false sense of pride. They might even think they're no good to God. Another person might be the passive person. They just let others take the lead. They never want to initiate because they, if they, they do and they make the wrong choice, then they'll be rejected for that choice. And so they're more of the don't rock the boat approach. And they'll just follow along and do what they're told, hoping that you will accept them uh, as a result of that. Then we have maybe the self-centered person. Our, I think today our society is full of this where it's all about me, my own gratification, has to be my way. It's, it's really, what do people owe me? What do people, what is government, what do others owe to me and my rights, and what's owing and deserving to me? And so they're very much focusing on themselves. And then finally, on the other end of the scale, we have the violent person. So if we have good-looking flesh on one side, the other side is the ugly-looking flesh, which is, you know, the violent person. Maybe anger, might be abusive, might be a Robert Picton or a Paul Bernardo type. It's just ugly-looking flesh, but it's still flesh. And it doesn't matter where you fit on this scale of flesh, flesh is flesh. Yes, Ian? Is there, for the passive person, is there a difference between in being speech, like being decisive or being indecisive, indecisive person and being passive? Um... It could be both. I mean, there could be a difference in the sense that there might be some that are afraid to act, but they'll do stuff. And then there's others that are just so withdrawn, they don't decide and they, they don't do anything. They just sit on the sidelines. So there's many different varieties of flesh. You might look at this and you know identify yourself and parts of those things. 
So what we want to do right now then is take a look at some of the common characteristics of the flesh on page 9 there. So this is what I see happening sometimes. And there's, there's a number of couples and friends here. And sometimes when I begin to start talking about the flesh, I start seeing elbows fly. And, and then I hear whispering, Honey, I think he's talking about you. You should write this down. In fact, I'll write it down. You just listen. And, and you know, you're just, you're so worried about somebody else getting their flesh convicted. And the reality is, you know, who's going to do that work? Whose job is it to convict us of our flesh? God's job. So unless you're God, and Ian's already admitted he's not. So unless you're God, then why not let God do that job? Okay? Because maybe God wants to say something to you. See, here's the other thing. Sometimes you start thinking, oh, if only Mary were here. Oh, Mary should have come tonight because she needs to hear this. This describes Mary to a T. And you're so worried about Mary. But did God bring Mary tonight? No. Who did God bring? You. So guess what? God might want to say something to you. So don't worry about your spouse. Don't worry about your friend. Don't worry about Mary or, or Bob or Steve or whatever. Let God speak to you. Can you see, how many people here have flesh? Good, we all do. That's so important. That's a big hurdle that we got to climb over to admit that I have flesh. Because we are so prone to wanting to defend ourselves. We're so prone to wanting to say, oh, but I have it all together. And the reality is you don't, but even more to the point, you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to be finished. You're supposed to be a work in progress. And I find that so liberating to be a work in progress. So if I'm not supposed to have it all together, if I am a work in progress, then Father, what are you working on? What areas are you touching? And so what, what we want to do now is just give God an opportunity to touch your heart. We all have flesh. There's no shame in that. There's no hiding it. So then the question is, what does your flesh look like? Okay? So the first one we want to look at is that the flesh is a controller. That's the first characteristic. Now, I won't say that everybody's flesh is a controller because I don't know everybody in the world, but I've yet to meet the person who's not a controller in their flesh. Every person I've met, to some degree, is trying to control. And there's many different reasons for control. The first one is just even maybe to keep God from controlling or getting too close to us. As Christians, that may sound awfully weird and strange to say, but that often is the case for people. People are worried that if I ever surrendered to God, if I ever really gave myself completely over to God, and I trusted Him for everything, then something might happen. For some people, they immediately start to think, well, I might get sick, or I might lose a loved one, or I might lose my job, or I might lose my home. Or God forbid, I become an Afri a missionary to Africa. That's the worst that people come up with. Um, we have a couple here. Um, so God really didn't like them, apparently. Um, so there's this fear that if I ever really gave myself over to God, that God's going to do something against me. And so we try to keep God at a safe distance. We love Him, and we're glad He loves us, but we just don't want Him to be too intrusive with our lives. Not to meddle too much. And so we then begin to try to manipulate God. God, if I do all these good things, then you don't have to interfere with my life. 
and then you know then I'll be okay. And so we're trying to control to maybe get keep God from getting too close because then he might take something of value away from us. Another is just to keep us from being overwhelmed by our circumstances. For many many people their happiness is based on their happenings. So if they have good happenings, then they will have happiness. And so they're so desperate, so badly trying to control the circumstances and everything around them. But you see, the reality is, you and I have no control. Any control you have is an illusion. How do I know? How many people can guarantee that you will wake up tomorrow morning? Never mind tomorrow morning. How many people can guarantee you'll make it home tonight? You can't. You might die in a car accident. You might die because we poisoned the coffee. Uh, we didn't, but uh, but I mean, you don't know what what's going to happen. You can't guarantee what's going to happen. We don't know. So we have no control, absolutely none. But yet we are desperately trying to control. And I find it interesting that the one person in control, God, doesn't force control on us. But the one person or everybody who's out of control tries to force their control on the circumstances and then other people as well. You see, if I don't control you, you might try to control me. And if I don't protect myself, you might hurt me. And so I need to protect me by controlling you. And I see this in a lot of marriages where one spouse is trying to control the other spouse so they don't get hurt. And then finally, it's just to keep our emotions suppressed. Because again, for some people, they just there's bottle of emotions where they're just stuffing it down deeper and deeper and deeper, trying to keep things under control. But then finally they can't and they are overwhelmed and they begin to explode. <coughs> and so they're desperately trying to control. And you have now a world full of people trying to control. And you know what that looks like? It looks like this all-wheel drive. How many steering wheels do you see? This is, you know, the literal backseat driver, right? Where everybody is trying to drive the car. But yet there's only one person that ought to drive. There's only one person that ought to be in control, and that's God. But we are so desperately trying to control. And, and as a way to illustrate it, let's take a look at some of the methods of control. The first one we have is a negative or critical attitude. You know, there's two forms of, of this kind of negative critical attitude. There's a very overt or obvious form, and then there's a covert or not so obvious form. So, for, for example, the overt, the obvious would be sort of like, um, suppose my, my daughter, she grows up and she decides to, to go out of province. She wants to go to, I don't know, the University of British Columbia. And I don't want her to go because that's, that's a far way away. And so when she says this to me, I say, Honey, you are an idiot for thinking that. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Did you hear the ne negative criticism in there? It wasn't so subtle, right? I'm calling her an idiot and I'm calling her dumb. So it's very clear, very obvious. So there's that overt form where I am putting her down, shaming her, hoping to get her to change her mind to do what I want her to do. But then there's a covert form that's not so obvious. Where it's, I could say, oh, honey, I don't know. Those people on the West Coast, they're, they're mean people. They are, I mean, the world's mean. They're just going to chew you up and spit you out. I don't know if you could, I don't know if, if you'd be good out there. I think you might get hurt. 
Now, on the surface, it sounds like I put a, put down the people of BC, but the reality is, I've just said, "My daughter, you're too weak. You can't handle it." And so, in trying to put her down, I'm getting her to do what I want her to do, which is just to stay local. So, using my negative, critical attitude, I'm getting her to do what I want her to do. Another might be body language. Something like 80% or even higher of all communication is nonverbal. I mean, you've seen it, right? You've been in the restaurant where there's the kids, hopefully not mine. They're just jumping all over the place and they're climbing over the step, the, the chairs and the stools and the tables. And then the dad gives the look. You know what look I'm talking about, right? Where that one simple look, all the children just immediately sit down and act like perfect little angels. I mean, it's an impressive look. I wish I could master it. I don't think I ever will. But, but what's he said in that one simple look? If you don't sit down now, you're going to get it when we get home. And they understood it because they did it all in unison together. And they got it. And so in that look, they communicated something. Or husband and wives, they, they, they're notorious for this. Maybe the husband says something to the wife and says, Oh, honey, what do you think of this idea? And she just goes, <sighs> rolls the eyes, shakes the head, sighs, puts her hands on the hips and looks at him. And then what's the message conveyed? You are the dumbest person for thinking of that. And you better recant and never say that ever again and come up with something else. Again, all said and just a simple roll the eyes, a sigh. So much is communicated in just our body language. And again, we do it trying to get people to act the way we want them to act. Another might be the silent treatment, refusing to communicate. It, what's great about little kids is that they're so new to their flesh. See, you and I, we've had years, decades to perfect our flesh to the point where our flesh is almost, you know, you can almost appreciate it as a work of art. It's so well refined. Whereas kids, it's just so rough and raw around the edge. I mean, it's just so, so new to them. So, you know, things aren't going their way. They just say, well, I'm just going to take my ball and go home. Right? I mean, oh, come on. Really? That's what you're going to do because we don't want to play the game you want to play? You're just going to take your ball and go home? But then we do the exact same thing as adults. I know couples that go weeks without talking because they had a disagreement. And then it's, I'm not going to talk to you until you change your mind. Until you do what I want you to do. And so we use those things. I mean, in marriages might even be to try to withhold sex as a weapon, as a tool to get someone to change their behavior. All sorts of things to control people. It might be anger or a hostile behavior where people are scared into, into doing what you want. It might be intimidation and threats. If you do this one more time, then. It might be favoritism. As parents, we might you know look to our kids and say, why can't you be more like your older brother or your older sister or your younger brother or younger sister. And what we're really saying to them is, you're not good enough the way you are. And so you better change. Or passivity. Now, passivity might seem like an odd way of trying to control someone, but it's a great form of control. 
I mean, think about with in the business workplace, you have the union that goes on strike or the management that locks out the workers. And it's just this idea of, again, I'm taking my ball home and I'm just going to sit by passively until you do what I want you to do. And then in relationships, you know, the one couple and a couple, one spouse just says, well, I'm not going to do anything until they start doing this. And so passivity becomes a very effective form of control. Depression or self-pity. This is the person that, you know, they just, they always use the poor me card. So you, you have to do whatever they want because otherwise you're going to make their life miserable and, and then you'll pay for it. And so if you suggest something and they don't like it, they say, well, fine. I guess we can do what you want to do. We'll always do what you want to do. Nobody wants to do what I want to do. And everyone feels guilty and miserable now and goes and does what that person wanted to do. Might be hypersensitive or touchy. So nobody can, you know, upset this person. Everyone's got to be really careful and gentle because if you ever wake the angry giant, then we're in trouble. And so, you know, you don't say the wrong thing, afraid of an outburst of anger or maybe an outburst of tears. And so they use their emotional outbursts to control people. Or manipulation. And religion is notorious for this. I mean, people who use religion, and to be clear, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a faith, a relationship with Christ. Religion is man's attempt to earn a way up to God. Christianity, and only Christianity, is God coming down to rescue man. But people of religion purport to speak for God to the point where they can be control and determine your eternal destiny. And so they manipulate you. They use all kinds of forms of guilt. They say things, for all that God has done for you, for all that He has sacrificed and all that He has given up for, and you can't help out in the nursery. Or you can't come to the Wednesday morning prayer meeting. Or you can't give, or you can't do this, or you can't help out here. And we use religion now to manipulate people. And it's a horrendous form of control because now we're doing it in the name of God. And then there's unforgiveness. Where maybe in a relationship where one spouse uses the past and the sins of another to get them to do what they want today. So maybe they're in a disagreement, an argument, and then one spouse brings up the past. Ever since you did that, I don't know if I can trust you. Well, immediately that person feels this big. And they give up and they say, okay, let's do it your way. And so they're using their past and their dirty laundry to control the person today. And all this control is of the flesh. None of this is good. None of this is God-ordained. This isn't, you know, if you're sitting there going, I never thought of that. That might work. No, that's not the point of this. (laughs) This is not a to-do list. (laughs) Okay? This is not to-do. This is the flesh. And God is not looking for you to control people. It's not what He wants. It is for freedom you have been set free. On page 10 there, the flesh is self-protective. Meaning, the flesh wants to protect me. Protect myself. And to do so, I will blame, I will make excuses, I will deny. I relate to this very well. This is an aspect of my flesh. 
I remember uh, one time I reached into the fridge and I, I grabbed one of those Tupperware containers. You know those Tupperware containers with the, the tops that you know you can pull off? They just kind of flip and flop sort of thing. Well, I went to go and pour my iced tea into my cup and I was doing it a nice, slow, controlled pour, no problems, when that flipper just flipped, <laughs> popped open, and my slow, controlled pour became a rapid filling of my cup. And I filled it all the way to the top before I realized what was going on and quickly pulled back. Well, my first reaction, my first thought was, I can't believe the art. I can't believe my wife would put the top on wrong. And I'm thinking that while I'm putting the, the container back in the fridge and, and closing the door, walking away, when all of a sudden God whispered into my ear, but Ross, you're the only one that has iced tea. Oh, yeah. But my first instinct was to blame my wife because who was I wanting to protect? Me. Because you always got to have someone else to blame when it goes sour. Because then you're not at fault. And that's what my reaction was. The great illustration of this really is in Exodus 32, verses 22 to 24. This is the story where Moses goes up the mountain to receive from God what the tabernacles to look like. He's gone for 40 days. And, you know, as like when the parents go, what do the kids do? They throw a party. And so he leaves, and now these these children of Israel, they go and they throw this wild party where they build a golden calf and they're dancing around it and drinking and having an orgy and so forth. And this is what Moses walks back to. And this is what he sees. And he, he just can't believe it. And he, he calls Aaron, his brother aside, the one he left in charge. And he says, Aaron, what what happened? I mean, 40 days ago, we all agreed to go into covenant with God to not do what you're doing. What went wrong? And look what Aaron says in verse 22. He says, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself that they are prone to evil. So his first instinct is to blame. He is willing to throw the entire nation of Israel under the bus to protect himself. It's not my fault, Moses. You know these people. They are wicked, evil, mean, cruel people. What did you expect from them? They're horrible people. Not me. I'm good. But these people... They are evil. Could we expect anything different? So he blames them. That's first step. Verse 23, he goes on and says, For they said to me, Make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So the next phase is to make excuses. Moses, you were gone for 40 days. I mean, we didn't know if you were coming back. We didn't know if something happened to you. I mean, the least you could have done was send us a text. You could have called us, sent us a message, you know, carrier pigeon. There was lots of smoke. You could have used a smoke signal. SOS, you know, let us know what's happening. You know, we wish you told us. So we don't know what's become of you, so we had to do something. And then finally, this one's my favorite. And this is, again, straight out of the text. This isn't a paraphrase, but, but this is straight out of the text, verse 24. And he said, I said to them, Okay, whoever has any gold, let him tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses, you should have been there. It was the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. They gave me the gold. I had nothing to do with it. And it, it just fell into the fire. Some threw it in there. And out jumped this calf. I had nothing to do with it. None whatsoever. So now he's into the phase of deny. So he blames the children of Israel, makes excuses, and denies any responsibility. Why? Please, Moses, don't hate me. Please, Moses, don't reject me. Please love me still. 
He's trying to protect himself. And so he will blame, make excuses, deny. You see, the, the flesh is self-centered. And that may not look selfish, because you may be unselfish, but still be self-centered. I remember uh, sitting in an airport once, watching the, the TV, the CNN, waiting for my next flight. And, and it was right after Hurricane Katrina hit. And they were interviewing uh, this psychologist because, you know, Katrina hit New Orleans, which is, you know, in the, the, the deep south, southeast of the states. But people in Seattle, Washington, on the opposite end of the country, opposite corner in the northwest, were devastated by what happened. Not that they were personally impacted in any way, but that the fact that, you know, within a 24-hour time period, you could lose everything your house, your job, your possessions, your memories, your treasures, maybe loved ones, that you can lose everything in that quickly of a, of a time frame. People were devastated and becoming you know, paralyzed and depressed by this. And so the host asked the psychologist, what do people need to do to overcome this? And the answer, she said, without missing a beat, she said, well, people need to do what they always do. They need to help other people because in helping other people, they feel better about themselves. What's the motivation to help people then? So I may do something unselfish, but it is for self-centered reasons. I will help you to get your praise, to get your applause. Or maybe I will help you, and I don't want anyone to know, just so I can pat myself and I feel better about myself. But the motivation here is to protect me, to make me feel better about me, to feel more valuable and more worthy. And that's what the flesh is doing. The flesh will also blend into its surroundings like a chameleon. See my chameleon up here? Blended into the surroundings. See, what a chameleon does is he, he hides so that no one picks him off. And I remember doing this when I was in school. You go to church on Sunday, and at church you praise God, and isn't God wonderful, and you sing songs, and do all those wonderful things. But then come Monday morning, when I went to school and university, I was part of a race car team, and I'd go to the race car shop. And then there, the challenge was to see who can tell the dirtiest joke. And with the same mouth that was praising God 24 hours earlier, I'm now telling dirty jokes. Well, why would I do that? For the same reason I was praising God on Sunday morning. You see, on the Monday, I was telling the dirty jokes so I could fit in with that crowd. But I was doing the exact same thing on Sunday morning as well. It was just a different language. So on Sunday, I praise God. On Monday, I tell dirty jokes because I want the acceptance of each crowd. And so I'm just trying to fit into the surroundings. And you see this among many Christians who, depending upon their audience, they appeal to that audience. And so you end up having this, where people are grouchy at home, but, you know, great at church. Someone has said, you know, people tell the most lies at church. And anywhere in the world, they tell lies in church. Because they ask the question, how are you doing? And the answer is, fine. No, you're not. You're miserable. You're sad. You're depressed. But we got to say fine because i got to, you know, blend into the surroundings. On, on page 10 then, the flesh is an, like an octopus. I'm not saying the flesh is an octopus, it's like an octopus. So here we have the flesh, or maybe we call it the self-life, and the tentacles of the octopus 
are the different manifestations of the flesh. So the different symptoms of it. Maybe it's self-reliance. Maybe it's indifference. Maybe it's control. Maybe it's impatience. Maybe it's criticism or critical attitude. Or maybe it's anger. And so these are the different uh, manifestations of the flesh. Now, how many people here have ever gotten into a fight with an octopus? You guys live sheltered lives. Really? No. <laughs> no, I've never gotten into a fight with an octopus either. But, but if I did, I know not to try to just cut off the tentacles. Because when you fight an octopus and you cut off his tentacles, you're never going to win. You see, what we often do in the Christian life, suppose this Christian, he's looking at these, these tentacles and he says, you know what, anger. Good Christians don't get angry, and so therefore I got to overcome my anger. So he goes to the local Christian bookstore, finds this health help, help section, and he finds a book that says, 12 steps to overcome your anger. Step one, whenever you get angry, count to 10. That will supposedly give you time for your emotions to calm down and you can make a rational choice. Well, he quickly discovers that 10 seconds isn't really enough for him. So step two is count to 100. So he tries that, and that's not working for him. And then step three is count backwards from 100, because you know you have to think more and it takes longer. So he tries that. That still doesn't work. Step four is count to 100 in a different language. So he has to go and learn Spanish, and that's really hard. And eventually, after five or six steps, he finally overcomes his anger. And in essence, all he's done is he has chopped off the tentacle. But what happens if you get into a fight with an octopus and you chop off one of its tentacles? Before it grows back, you know what happens to the other tentacles? They go stronger. So here now, what this person has learned is that he can do it. He can overcome anything. And so he becomes more self-reliant. And then he begins to look at other people who have anger problems and he's rather critical of their anger problems. And so he begins to try to control them. He writes a book, Six Easy Steps to Overcome Your Anger and Be Like Me. And then he gives this book to people and says, here, read this book and be like me. And then they can't do it. And so then he becomes rather impatient with them because they're not having the same success as he was. And so finally he just becomes indifferent to them, not caring that they're struggling. And after all these other ones grow stronger... Then a new run grows back, and now he's full of pride. Because he gets up on testimony night and says, Look what I have done. I have overcome my anger. Then he throws in with God's help because it sounds better, but really it was all about him and what he had done. And now he's full of pride. And the reason is, is because all you do is you deal with the symptoms. The answer is, stick a knife in the head. Kill the octopus, and what happens to the tentacles? They die. So, in an effort to help you discover what your octopus looks like, turn to page uh, 13 of your notes. On page 13, you will see a long list of manifestations of the flesh. And this is what you do. You find some time with God and say, Father, I have flesh. We all have it. It's okay to have. It's just the reality of life. And Father, I want you to show me what my flesh looks like. You might pray a prayer like David prayed in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Father, show if there's any wrong way of my heart. Show me. Expose my flesh to me, Father. And what you do is one by one you go through the list and you say, Father, does this describe me or not? 
If he says, no, that doesn't describe you, cross it off. If he says, yeah, that's true of you, then you put an X beside it. The key is asking Father. You see, if it was up to you and I, we will justify our flesh. Because there's a way that seems right to us. But Father knows. And so Father will tell you. So when you're done with page 13, then go to page 14. And go through that list. And when you're done page 14, go to page 15. And go through that list. And when you're done page 15, go to page... No, there's no 16. So three pages is enough, right? And you can go through those lists and begin to see what your flesh looks like. That may not be a fun exercise, but it's so crucial. It is so important. Because if you don't see your flesh, then then you don't know what Christ is the answer to. Remember, we got to see the problem and understand the problem before the answer has any value and meaning. Does that make sense? Question I got is I filled this out about two years ago. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. Because the goal the goal is not to improve your flesh. I mean, we're not trying to fix your flesh. We're not trying to make your flesh look prettier. What we're trying to get you to do is not rely upon that flesh, but rely upon Jesus. So those ways of coping will always be available to you. So it's not fixing the flesh. In fact, your flesh might get worse with time. Not the point. It's are you trusting in Jesus? That's what we're looking for. All right, back to page 10. The flesh is a captive or a victim. Here is a long list. You don't have to write them all down. But here is a long list of things that maybe you feel that you are in bondage to. Be it drugs, be it smoking, be it alcohol or lust, obsessive thoughts, compulsive behavior, eating disorders, all sorts of things that this is what you know you might feel in bondage to. And you might think, I don't know if I'll ever be free. Maybe, maybe not till the day I die, I will be in bondage to this, whatever. But I got some good news for you then. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he walked into the temple and he grabbed the scroll from Isaiah chapter 61. And he read this. And this was kind of the mission statement or the the purpose of why he came. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. You see, would Jesus leave planet Earth without this mission being completed? No. This is what He came to do, and this is what He has done. In fact, what did He say on the cross? It is finished. He has accomplished the freedom. He has accomplished the liberty. The problem is, we might not, might not know about it. How many people remember who Harry Houdini was? The master escape artist in the early 1900s. He would travel from town to town and, you know, escape from, you know, chains and prisons and so forth. And one of the things he would do to promote his show, wherever he would go, is he would, he would have the local sheriff lock him up in the prison and he would, you know, clear everyone out of the prison and then he would escape the prison and everyone would applaud and wow, this is great. Can't wait to see what he's going to do tonight. And they'd pay their money to go to the show. 
Well, there was one prison he goes to, and you know, same routine. They go and they put him in the cell, close the door, they walk out, and as soon as the guard walks out, he'd pull out from his his overcoat, he'd pull out a bit of a pin and begin to pick the lock. Now, when you're picking a lock, you're waiting to hear the click because that tells you when the lock has been picked. At least that's what I've been told. So, so he begins to now work in picking the lock, but there's no sound. There's no click. And normally it takes him, you know, a minute or two and he picks the lock and away it goes. But five minutes go by and there's, there's no click. Ten minutes go by, no click. He's now starting to sweat. He takes off his outer coat and he's, he's working madly on it. Still nothing. The people outside, 15, 20 minutes go by. I think, oh, have we finally got the great Houdini? Half an hour goes by. And he's exhausted. He's tried everything. And he gets so tired, he leans up against the door. And it swings wide open. The guard forgot to lock the door. That's why he heard no pick, no click, because it was never locked. So how long was he a prisoner? He never was. But he didn't know that. He didn't know he was free. And so he remained a prisoner, even though he could have walked out right away. And that's the case for us when we struggle with this. We don't know the freedom that we have. And so we remain in captivity. We remain in bondage when we don't have to. And so we want to discover is how has God set us free? How has He made it possible? Another part of the flesh is it's deceptive. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that the heart of man is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? It's beyond cure. And our flesh, it seems so right to us, but it's so wrong. There's a way that seems right unto man, but it's the way of death. It's the way of destruction. See, we've grown up with our flesh. Our flesh seems natural. It seems right because, A, we're worried about ourselves and trying to protect ourselves. And this seems to be the only way to do it. So whether I'm going to control or criticize or beat down or blame or whatever, it seems the right thing to do to protect me. And so it's so deceitful to that end. The flesh builds an identity around itself on page 11. Again, here's a long list of things, but you don't have to write them all down. Man essentially regards himself by what he does. Have you ever noticed that if you talk to a man who's maybe wearing a tool tool belt and a hard hat, and you ask him what he does, he might say, I am a construction worker. You ask what he does, and he gives you an answer of who he is. Or maybe the guy is wearing a lab coat and a stethoscope around his neck and you ask him, what do you do? I am a doctor. We generally regard ourselves by what we do. Be it our, our career, be it the friends we keep, be it the church we go to, be it the kids that we have. We've identified ourselves so much about the externals because we don't really know who we are. And so the flesh is building itself around, around what it can do. The flesh is proud. Again, I, I don't know everybody, so I can't say confidently that everybody's flesh is proud, but I have yet to meet the person who's not. And there are very many different variations of pride. We often think of pride as being the one who's boasting about all that they can do and, and very arrogant and self-absorbed in that sense. And that's true of pride. But then there's another form of of pride, which is very, very low opinion of themselves. Oh, I'm worthless. I'm no good. I can't do anything right. See, that person is just as proud because proud is focused on who? On self. 
on themselves. So here's a little test to see if you are pride or you are proud. First one is relying on your own strengths and abilities instead of depending upon Christ living through you. That's an extremely proud way to live because essentially you're saying, I can do it better than Jesus. I can do it better than God. And so there are many people who rely upon their own strengths rather than Jesus. Asking God to help them. That may not sound very bad. In fact, many people, that's their prayer. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. But the reality is, think about this. When you're asking God to be your helper, what have you relegated him to? What position? To servant. I mean, right now I've got some girls at home and and maybe they're going to help me make lunch. So I go and get them to hand me the stuff and maybe I put it all together. But they're now serving me. They're helping me. But I'm the one in charge. I'm the one in control. And when our prayers are, Lord, help me, it means that we're the one in control and God, will you do what I've asked you to do? And God now is the one serving us and we're the one in authority. And God hasn't come to serve you that way. He hasn't come to help you in that way. Instead, He's come to live in through you. The reality is, Lord, can I be a part of what you're doing? Not, can you be a part of what I'm doing? Do you see the difference? Being more concerned with my reputation and protecting myself more than what God wants to do. There are many people that are worried about that stuff. And God, He is not worried about reputations. I am convinced of that. If He was, I think 90% of all TV evangelists would have been struck dead by now. You know, by lightning and plagues and you know ground earth opening up and swallowing them whole and then coming back together. Something, you know, biblical and incredible. Just to prove a point. Because they, I think, devalue God's reputation time and time again. But He doesn't do that. Because he's pretty secure in himself. He knows who he is and he's okay. You and I, we're the ones that worry about reputations. Having a tendency to think I don't have any needs. That there's, you know, I'm okay, I've got it all together and I don't need anyone or anything. Really? I thought God was only that person. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Meaning, He's the one that provides all of my wants, but therefore I have wants. I have needs. Being concerned, I get the credit I feel I deserve because I need that credit. I need that affirmation to make myself feel good about me. Maybe finding it hard to admit that I'm wrong because I can't make a mistake. Considering myself better than others. You know, you're lucky to have me around. I'm God's gift to you. Being overly concerned with myself at the expense of others. That I am at peace, I have happiness, and everyone else is around to serve me. Ultimately, it's God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The word resist means that He is going to oppose. He is going to stand in the way of the proud. But the one who is humble, He is willing to give grace. The flesh is an idolater, and you're right. We don't have golden calves, but we have other idols. We have many different idols. And an idol is really anything other than God that you rely upon to meet your needs. 
And so a good test to see if you have an idol in your life is to imagine if you woke up the next day, tomorrow, and something were to be different in your life, and it would be forever changed, and you don't know if life would be worth living, chances are what changed was an idol. Or maybe at the very least you don't know how you would live. That's an idol. So for some people, it's their money. Because that money provides the security and their their sense of peace. For some, it's their job because that provides their identity as well as maybe security. For some, it's their reputation because that gives them worth. For some, it's a spouse because that provides love, acceptance, security. For some, it's their children because that gives them a sense of purpose. There's all sorts of things. It could be a, a ministry. It could be religion or it could be your church. It could be all sorts of things. And you see, idols aren't necessarily bad. But what does God think of idols? He hates them. He tears them down. Why? Because He's insecure with Himself and He feels bad if you don't give Him the attention He wants? No. Because He's jealous for you. He desperately wants you. He wants your heart. And He doesn't want to let anything get in the way of that. And you see, the one who provides all your needs is Jesus. That's what Philippians 4.13 says. That God is the one that provides for all our needs in Christ Jesus. He may use other people. He may use your job, your spouse. But the problem is we mistake that person as the one meeting our needs. Not realizing that it's God. And so we elevate that person into a position of idolatry where we, we worship them above God. And then finally, the flesh is a rejecter. My coping rejects you. You see, if I were to reject you, you might do one of two things. You might slap me in the face, or you might just walk right out of here. Either way, you reject me. And you see, that's what you do. You just won't come back then. Because while he rejected me, then I'm going to reject him right back. And so my rejecting you sends you to reject me back. The problem is, you don't. You get sick and tired of being rejected first. And so you decide to launch a preemptive strike. You see someone might reject you, so you choose to reject them first before they have a chance to reject you. So it's reject and run. That way they can't hurt you. And then they start feeling bad, and they think, well, maybe I should launch a preemptive strike against other people as well. And so this rejection just begins to spread from person to person. And we live in a world full of rejection. Full of it. And so then I reject you just to cope with it. Just to make myself feel better. But you see, the reality is, neither control measures nor laws can change or reform the flesh. It's not the point. It may temporarily alter its behavior... But it doesn't change it. It doesn't fix it. It can't. The Spirit gives life, but the flesh counts or profits for nothing. There's no value in it. So the question is, how do we how does our flesh form? How did we get here for our own unique version of the flesh? Well, if you turn to page twelve. And don't write these questions on that page. Maybe you can write them on the back of page 11 if you like. Um, you'll see in a minute what we're going to write on that tree there. But we all have questions. Am I loved? 
Am I of worth? Am I accepted? Am I important? Am I competent? Am I secure? Who am I? These are all questions that are unique to man. I mean, you won't find your dog sitting on the floor wondering to himself, you know, who am I really? I mean, I know I bark and and I chase cats, but is that all I am or am I more than that? They don't do that. Or you don't see cats walking around saying, am I really important to this person? They don't care. It's not what they're thinking. But man grapples with these questions. And these questions, I believe, are there to draw us towards God. They are there as a sense of to haunt us, to show that there's something more, there's something greater. And so we all have these questions. And so we look to where to answer them. Growing up, who do we look to? To our parents and anyone else around us in this world. You see, the thing about little kids that just amazes me is they have incredible memories. My my four-year-old, she can learn a song like that. Me, I have trouble remembering what I had for dinner last night. But, I mean, they just had these great memories. The problem is they're lousy interpreters of that information. I mean, they think Elmo is real, right? I mean, that just tells you that they don't have a great understanding. They don't interpret things very well. And so what ends up happening is they collect information, but they often misinterpret it. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose there is a little kid named Billy. And Billy, the, the best thing in Billy's world is when he gets to play catch with Dad. And so one day, Billy's dad comes and says, Billy, when I get home from work tomorrow, you and I, we're going to play catch. And Billy's just over the moon excited. Can barely sleep that night, but does. Gets up, goes to school, brags to his friends about what he's going to do. All excited, all pumped up about playing catch with Dad. Well, the next day, you know, the, he comes home from school, all pumped, does his homework, does his chores without being told, because he wants to let nothing get in the way of playing catch. And so he's just sitting on the stoop afterwards, ball and glove, saying, Dad, I can't wait to get home. Well, Dad didn't have such a great day. You know, he, he was driving to work when all of a sudden a tire blew and so he had to change the flat tire and put on one of those little donut, don't, dummy tires, whatever. And, you know, he's got to work late and so he missed the first meeting where they canceled the project he was working on. And then in the second meeting, they're announcing upcoming layoffs. And he's thinking, uh, if I don't have a project, I chances are I don't have a job. So he's worried about his job. And he's thinking, how am I going to, I got a flat tire, and how am I going to pay for that? And how am I going to pay for the bills and the mortgage and care for my family? And he's got all these problems in his mind, and he's driving home, you know, slow, stuck in traffic, stop and go, the miserable day. Well, he comes home, and he walks past Billy, and Billy's, Dad, we ready to play catch? Not right now, son. And he walks right past him, plunks him down himself on the, on the couch, turns on the baseball game and watches TV. And little Billy's there, left to interpret the events. Do you think he sits there and says, wow, you know, I think Dad had a rough day. If I give him 10 minutes, I bet you he'll be okay. You think that's what he's thinking? No. He's thinking, what's wrong with me? Why would Dad rather watch baseball than play baseball. Why is that more important to him than me? Why am I worth less than the baseball game? Now, is that the message Dad intended to send? 
No, far from it. Anything but. But that's the message received. And what's more important, the message that was sent or the message received? The message received. That trumps everything. And so the message received for Billy is that he's worthless. And so what we have there on page 12 is this tree. And we use a tree as a bit of a backdrop because a tree's got three parts. You've got the roots, the trunk, and then the fruit. The roots gather the nutrients which go to grow and form the trunk, and off the trunk and the branches form the fruit. And that's what happens for you and I. Our root system is the messages that we receive from the world. Messages that might have been intended sent to us, or messages that we received but then misinterpreted. And it's out of those messages that we begin to form our trunk, our feelings and beliefs about ourselves. It's the belief systems about us, about others, about the world around us, and about maybe even God, about life in general. And this is so important, because as Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man believes in his heart, so is he. Meaning, whatever you believe about yourself will determine how you live. And so that begins to form our flesh, how we cope with life, how we survive. And that's our flesh. So in our little story here, poor little Billy, he comes away with the feeling and belief that he's worthless. And where did that come from? Well, from his dad, from his parents. Now, again, did they mean to send that message? No. For some, maybe they did. Maybe parents were sending that message. You're worthless, you're no good. And there are some parents that do that. But then there are some who not trying to send that message. That's the message that's received. Just today, my, my wife was telling me how, you know, my oldest daughter and her, they weren't getting along. And, and then, one, you know, today my wife, she sat down with her and said, Hannah, what's wrong? What's going on? And it came out that although we're telling her that we love her and we care for her, she was believing something else. She's believing something totally different. And so she believed that she was worthless. That's the message that she was hearing. And that's the message she internalized. Another message might be inferior. Inferior says you're not good enough. Or sorry, you're not as good as someone. You're, you're less than something else. And maybe we learn that message when we're being compared to our siblings. Maybe parents compared your parents compared you to your siblings, or maybe in school you were compared to a sibling. You know, maybe you had an older brother or older sister who was the star athlete or the the super student or the popular one. And then when it was your turn to go through school, then the teachers looked at you and said, "Why are you not like your brother? Your brother had no problem with math. Why do you have problems with math? Or your brother or sister was so popular. What's wrong with you?" And so we come away with a message that I'm inferior. I don't measure up to. I'm not as good as. Well, we might come away with the message that I'm inadequate. If inferior says I'm not as good as, inadequate says you're just not good enough. You don't pass a test. You don't cut it. Maybe we learned that message in school where it failed some classes, failed some tests, Maybe we were cut from some sports teams. Or maybe friends just didn't want us in their, in their peer group. And the message was sent loud and clear. 
You're not pretty enough. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. Maybe you were picked last in sports. And we internalize the message, I'm inadequate. I'm not good enough. Maybe we feel we're useless. Maybe we hear that message from our spouse. But the reality is, by the time we meet our spouses, this belief system has been in place for years. And when we meet the spouse and maybe they begin to say things, all they do is they surface what we already believe. See, I do all kinds of counseling with married couples and they come in and they, they blame their spouse for feeling all this. And then we start talking about their history and how they grew up and what the message they received and they discover that they believed all this stuff 10, 12 years before they ever met their spouse. You see, you and I, when we get into a marriage, we bring the baggage of our past into the marriage with us. And all we end up doing is surfacing all that baggage. And we think, why is my spouse making me feel that way? And they're not. They're just exposing what you already believe. Because the messages were there a long time ago. Maybe you feel insecure and guilty. And maybe we get that message from church. Where the message is said that if you ever do this, God won't love you anymore. If this ever happens, God will be so angry with you, you're in trouble. And so we feel like we're just not measuring up and we're never secure. That at any moment in time, this, this impulsive, irrational God will cast me out. And we're afraid of that. And you may think, well, that's ridiculous. I would never think of God in that way. Then ask yourself, what does God look like on your worst day? Because that's when you find out what you really believe about God. Not on the good days when the sun is shining and the roses smell nice and the birds are singing, but on the lousy days where everything is failing, everything is going wrong, and you're utterly miserable. And you're wondering, why God? That's when you discover what you really think of God. Or maybe the person begins to believe that they're accepted by what they do, by their performance. And in our society, this is rampant. I have yet to meet the person that doesn't have this somewhere in their belief system. That I am accepted by what I do or don't do. If, if I do this, will you love me? If I do this, will you not? Will you reject me? And what often happens is we learn this from our friends. I mean, parents come to me and they say, my, I don't know what happened to my little child. They used to be so wonderful. And then right around these teenage years, they began to rebel. And then I meet with the child and then we begin to discover that all growing up, they never felt loved and accepted. And so when they hit the teenage years, they found another group of people that felt very similar, not loved and accepted. And they almost make a pact with one another that says, if you love me, I'll love you. And they say, well, that sounds good. And so now they, they find this group where they're willing to, to get a taste of that love and acceptance and it tastes so good that they're, they'll do everything and anything to keep it. And so girlfriends are having sex with their boyfriends and boyfriends are having sex with their girlfriends, even though they may know it's wrong, but they're afraid to say no because they might lose that love that they have. Or they listen to crazy music and wear crazy styles of clothes and, and do crazy things with tattoos and piercings and so forth. Not that those things are wrong, but they're doing it in order to find love with that group. 
And you see, here's the thing. The moment somebody finds any sort of love with a group, they'll do everything they can to keep it. Because it feels so good. Even if they know it's wrong. And so, looking at this person, would you expect this person to be angry or peaceful? It's understandable this person be angry. Maybe they feel like they have a chip on their shoulder, that God has dealt them a bad hand, and it's not fair everything they've gone through. And so they're angry, and they're going to take it out on everybody else. But the reality is they could go either way. They might be extremely peaceful on the outside, hoping that you will love them, hoping desperately that you'll accept them, because they're so hungry for love. And so they act like they have you know, peace. They're happy. So you'll want them to be around you. So you'll want them to be around you. Critical or complimentary? Could go either way again. They could be critical to the point where they cut people down. And the reason you cut people down is so that you can lift yourself up. You point out all their flaws and say, see, they're flawed. They've got problems. At least I'm not the only one. And so they tear others down to build themselves up. But then you could go the way I went, which is complimentary. Because I figured you'd want to be my friend. You'd want me around if I make you feel good about yourself. So I still remember a time when a friend of mine, he told me a joke. And it was a lousy joke. It wasn't funny. It was even worse than my jokes. And I was laughing at it. And I, I remember thinking, stop laughing. It's not funny. It's a dumb joke, but I couldn't stop laughing because I wanted him to feel good about himself around me because then he'd want to be around me. And so I would compliment. I'd make you feel good about yourself just so you would love me. Anxious or restful? Well, really, there's no rest, just anxiety. They're just waiting for maybe you know something to go wrong. They're waiting for something to happen. And the worst thing is when they don't know what's going to happen. You see, when there's something to worry about, then they understand and know what to worry about. But when there's nothing to worry about, that really worries them. That really freaks them out. Because they're trying to control. They're trying to keep everything together. And they know they don't have what it takes. That's why they're so anxious. Withdrawing or outgoing could go either way. They could be extremely withdrawing. I know one lady, a friend of mine, who in her her uh, growing up, she felt so rejected, so worthless, that she was terrified of any kind of attention. But the one thing she craved above all, above all else was attention. So every so often she'd step out into the spotlight where everyone would see her and and you know look at her, but immediately what did she think everyone saw? how worthless and invaluable and no good she was. And so she would flee and retreat and become the wallflower again. That's a catch-22. The very thing you desperately want is the very thing that terrifies you. And so that's what she would do, afraid that she would ever see what she knew to be true of herself or what she thought was true. Or you could become the class clown, outgoing, tell jokes so everyone will like you, you know, the social person, the social butterfly... So people are drawn to you and they're attracted to you. We might turn to fantasy. 
Nowadays, you could log on and into the computer, the internet, and you you start chatting with Lucy, who's five foot, hundred pounds. Only to discover that Lucy is Bill, and he's five foot, but not a hundred pounds. Uh, maybe five feet this way, and and so there's this fantasy world out there where you can become someone different and someone else. Because who are you trying to escape from? Yourself. But fantasy isn't new to Facebook and the internet. Before that, there was TV. Before that, there were magazines and books. And those have been around. Before that, there was just your own imagination. And so people have been escaping themselves or trying to escape themselves for a long time. Rejecting or accepting. Could go either way. Reject everyone else to cope with their pain. Or accept everyone hoping that someone would love them. I don't care, just please love me. It doesn't matter. That's the way I went for a a lot of years. You might turn to perfectionism. Where you have to do everything right. Because if you just do it right, then maybe there will be some value in you. The problem is, can you ever do it perfectly? So you meet Mary, who's you a perfectionist. And, and she makes her own dresses and you say, Mary, wow, what a beautiful dress. Did you make that yourself? Yeah. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, I, I just can't seem to get the left, uh, left pocket inseam right. I've done it and ripped it out four times. I just can't get it right. Who sees the inseam of the left pocket? Well, Mary does. And she knows all about it. And because it's never good enough, she's not good enough. And it can never be good enough. Irresponsible or responsible? Well, they might try to be responsible where they try to do everything right to find value and worth. Or they might go irresponsible. In fact, I heard a story of one man who was both. He was extremely responsible. So responsible, he got promoted in a raise. And so the boss was all excited to go in to tell him that he was giving him a raise and a promotion and a better job. At which point the man jumped up, slammed his fist on the table and said, That's it, I quit. And the boss said, well, well, did you not hear me? I'm giving you more money, better job. What's the problem? Because you're just setting me up for a bigger fall. So I'm quitting now. So a man who was responsible does a very irresponsible thing. You see, I want you to see, you could be both. It just switches based on the circumstances and the situation. Sarcastic or kind and gracious. Could be both. I know one person who's extremely sarcastic and cutting with her comments, probably doesn't even recognize it for what she's doing. But you can go the way I went, kind and gracious. And that sounds also wonderful, but it wasn't. It was just me trying to use you. It was me trying to manipulate you to get me, get you to love me. It was my attempt to suck life from you. That's how ugly the flesh is. Looked really good on the outside, but at the core, ugly. Self-justifying. I know one guy who, um, he was a minister of a church, and he came to me for some counseling, went through extreme abuse, extreme rejection growing up. I mean, it was not healthy, not right what this kid had to go through growing up. But now as an adult, he comes to me and says, Ross, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. I'm having sex with her, but you have to understand it's not my fault. 
Really? It's not your fault? And I'm thinking, is she, you know, do I got to call the police on her? Has she got a gun to your head? Is she, is she threatening you? I mean, what's she doing? Well, I'm not doing any of that, but she's making me have sex with her. Well, he's not making you. But for him, he could never admit, he could never admit that it was his fault. That he could never take responsibility. He always had to blame someone else. Because to take responsibility onto himself would have been too big of a burden because of what he already believed. So in order to cope and to cover this up, he had to blame others. He had to justify his own actions, even though it was wrong. Hardworking. I used to remember think, you know, my, my lack of ability will be compensated by my hard work and diligence. And so I will have to work harder than the next guy to make it work. It might be impatient or tolerant. It might be completely impatient, have no time for anybody, or you could go for tolerant. I don't care, just please love me. I don't care who you are, what you do, please love me. Please accept me. Please give me worth. Please validate me. Might turn to substance abuse. They might try to bury their pain in the bottom of a glass. Or they might turn to street drugs. Or they might turn to prescription drugs. Might even turn to over-the-counter drugs. I know some people who can't get through the day without Tylenol. And then there's some who turn to food. Because that's another thing to abuse. I know it's a cliche, but girls, if your boyfriend breaks up with you, what do you do? You call the girlfriend and they come over and you what? Eat ice cream. I know it's the cliche, but it's not uncommon. And for in that moment, the ice cream, the chocolate makes you feel better. The problem is then anytime you need a pick-me-up, you turn to that food. And then food becomes now abused. Trying to feel good about life. Trying to feel good about yourself. Might begin to depend upon your emotions. Your emotions will dictate what's truth. So if I feel good, I'm good. If I feel bad, I'm bad. Meaning I'll do whatever it takes to feel good. Hence the reason I'll turn to drugs. Might turn to my own you know, selfishness. It's just whatever I need to do to feel good, I will do. And so my emotions begin to drive me and control me. Become self-reliant. This is, again, rampant through our society. This is what the world preaches. Be independently wealthy. Be financially secure. Freedom 55. Don't rely upon anyone. Preaches the gospel of Oprah. The problem is, when you're reliant upon yourself, who are you not relying upon? You're not relying upon Jesus. Then there's procrastination. I'll tell you about that another time. I told you bad jokes. And just putting it off, right? And the reason being is, if I put it off, then I haven't failed. And so I'll just keep putting it off and putting it off. And see, for me, I'm a bit of a perfectionist, and so I procrastinate. Because I know I can't do it perfectly, so I just keep putting it off because then I haven't failed. It's a good combination. You just don't get anything done that way. Irritable or calm, cool, and collected. Could go either way. Performance-based acceptance, we've talked about that, where I'll do whatever it takes for you to love me, to accept me. Pride. 
And it may be a false pride where I put on a mask that pretends I have it all together because I don't want you to look past and see the mess that I'm in. We might be controlling. We might go easygoing. Again, don't want to rock the boat. I want people to like me. We might even turn to materialistic things to to make ourselves feel better. And again, I know it's the cliche, but, but you have the woman who's got 13 pairs of black shoes that all look alike. And the reason was because she went out and bought those shoes to make herself feel better about herself. And I'm not picking on you ladies because us guys, we just have far more expensive toys, power tools, electronics, cars. And so all we're doing is buying that stuff to find value and worth in ourselves. But it never lasts. I know one couple where every couple of years they got to go and get new everything, new car, new house, new electronics, new clothes, just to validate their sense of worth. And so we turn to all these things trying to make ourselves feel better. And telling people to just stop doing this isn't going to work. Because the problem isn't up here. The problem is who we believe we are. And until this changes, you'll have no hope. All you'll be doing is treating the symptoms never understanding the disease. Now what we have here in the roots, they have led to the fruits up here. And with these roots, they are lies. Now some of these may be overt lies. Some of these may just be lies we've believed. You see, what we're not blaming, we're not blaming our parents and our siblings and so forth, because ultimately, who believed the lies? We did. And you see, if the truth sets us free, what will lies do? They'll put us into bondage. And so we now become in bondage to this way of living. And so we need truth to set us free. Now, if you look how I've formatted this tree, you know, I, I try to make this stuff in brown look like it's you know, a dead tree, an empty tree, where the stuff in green looks really good. And the reason being is, Because this stuff in brown is all stuff we look down upon. You know, angry, controlling, critical, sarcastic. We see that as being ugly. But this stuff over here, kind and gracious and responsible and tolerant and hardworking and easygoing, those are things that we aspire to. But you see, the reality is all we've created is just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what I see many Christians doing is they try to prune out the ugly, the dead branches, the negative fruit, hoping to get more good fruit. But you see, it's the wrong tree. And remember we said the tree of knowledge of good and evil can never produce life, it can only produce death. And many Christians are living out of the right side of the wrong tree. They're trying to do more good, less evil, and God says, I don't want you living out of that tree of all at all. I want you to live out of me, the tree of life. That's what he's looking for. And so this tree, in Matthew 7, 17 and 19, he says, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Is this a good tree or a bad tree? What makes it a bad tree? It's not the fruit. I want you to see the fruit is the product of the kind of tree it is. 
it's a bad tree because it's a bad tree. Just like an apple tree doesn't become an apple tree when it produces apples, it produces apples because it's an apple tree. And so what we have here, Jesus is saying, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Meaning, the tree of the knowledge, good and evil, the tree of the flesh, no matter how good it looks, cannot produce good fruit. It only can produce bad fruit. So the solution isn't to clean up the tree. It's not to sanctify the tree. It's not to improve the tree. The only solution, God says, is every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. God got to get rid of the tree. He needs to cut it down in order that He can replace it with a brand new tree. And so what we want to begin to discover then is how God gets rid of the old tree in order to establish a new tree. Are you thoroughly depressed yet? No, I failed. We can go a few more hours then, and I got some more stuff. I won't do that. Let's uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we've talked about some exciting stuff and the fact that, Lord, You have come now to live in us. That we now have the opportunity to experience the dynamic life, Your dynamic life, living today, in and through us. But Father, we've also talked about what gets in the way of that, our flesh. And we all have it, so there's no shame in the fact that we have flesh. It's just the reality, the fact of life. And so I pray, Father, that in the next day and weeks and months and really for the rest of our lives, You will continue to expose and show us our flesh. Not for the purpose of shaming us, because that's not what You want to do but in order, to show, in order to show us the freedom that we can have from it. In order that we could discover how you have come to live in us differently. So thank you, Father, for what you're going to do. Continue to speak to us as we go home and, and prepare us for what you have for, uh, for tomorrow night as we begin to discover your answer for how you've cut down this tree and planted a new one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.